this morning is uh, going to be found in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to read uh, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 this morning. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to his kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and the trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to his kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be life in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moved, and with, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to his kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Father, we come before you, we recognize that you are the sovereign holy creator of everything that has been made and we worship you as such we pray for Pastor Toby this morning as he preaches from this text that he would preach with clarity and with power and with conviction we pray that hearts and minds in this auditorium this morning would hear the truth believe the truth and love the truth we ask these things in Jesus name Amen. In the credenza of my office, behind the screens where I research and write, are bits of artwork, artwork that spans the last 15 years or so, artwork that has been collected over time, a precious collection that is priceless. Each of my children at some point has created something that has landed on that wall and has stayed there even as the office in which I work, uh, the city in which we live, and the furniture which I utilize has changed. And when I look at those pieces of art, some of them are more impressive than others. I don't look at all of them and think, wow, that's an artist right there. I look at those pieces of art and they turn my mind to the artists themselves. And if you go to the Indianapolis Museum of Art and you go and you look at the great works of art that are there and you look at photography and you look at painting and you see color and line and movement and the use of light and shadow and all these things, 
There really are times when I've been in places like that that I've been left breathless and in awe and not really knowing how to describe what I'm, feel, what I'm looking at and thinking in that moment. I can't find the words. And then to think that there is a mind out of which this is just a portion of what's in there. This is just a bit of the imagination and design and work of an artist. Then I am in awe of the brilliance of the creator of that art, more than the art itself even. And that, I believe, is what we are to do when we come to creation in the Bible, and even when we come to creation in life. We are not merely to be in awe of creation. It is awesome. But we are not merely to be in awe of creation. Otherwise, we sound no different than our unbelieving relatives and neighbors. We're just thinking things are pretty. But as we are in awe of creation, it ought to turn our minds to the Creator. In fact, Paul says in Romans 1, that that's the very problem with the world, is that, that the, the divine power in nature has been revealed in the things that are made, but we have exchanged the Creator for the creature. That is... A significant problem because, in fact, what's happening as we look at those things in creation is Psalm 19 says they are declaring the glory of God. And Genesis 1 1 to 2 3 isn't just a means by which we receive facts about creation. This text is meant to magnify the Creator. It is meant to leave us breathless, not so much at what He has made, but at Himself. It's to leave us breathless at His power and His wisdom and His greatness and His goodness. And that's my goal today. I realize that in a text this large with so many things there that we could actually lose the forest for the trees. So I'm going to work hard to stay with the forest. And if you want to examine trees that I kind of seem to walk past a little more quickly than you'd like, well, then that's why I sent out the email this week about that book by John MacArthur, The Battle for the Beginning. That's a wonderful way. There are others, but that's a wonder. We're already sold out. We'll have more next week. But that, that's a wonderful way to do that. I cannot do that and, I think, capture what is meant to be captured. I want to focus on that, focus on the big idea here. So this morning, I do want us to focus on the big picture. The, the big idea is really this, that all creation declares the glory of its Creator. As we walk through this text and then out of this text and into our week, we should be declaring along with this text that God is awesome.
So let's look at what creation declares. First of all, creation declares that God's Word is powerful. The text is filled with repetition. It would be just a helpful study for you to go through and just look at all the things that are repeated and the types of things, the, the refrain, and there was evening and there was morning, and it was so, and God said, and God saw. In fact, I write, uh, I begin my week typically by writing by hand the text that I am preaching that Sunday, and every time something started with, and God, I would go back to left justify there and start there. And it's an interesting way to look at this whole, this whole account because God is the actor here. God is the one who's on the stage. And God's Word is powerful. One of the things that is refrained, the thing that we hear over and over again is God's voice. We don't hear the caw of the birds, the roar of the lions, the rush of the waves. We hear the voice of God. And God said, and it was so. That's the rhythm of creation. And God said, and it was so. The utterance of God, the divine command, brings things into existence so that He orchestrates and organizes all of creation. He speaks, and it happens. Psalm 33, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. Water, light, sky, land, plants, fruit trees, sea creatures, great and small, birds of all variety, land animals, herbivores, carnivores, and reptiles, and whatever creeps along, and human beings, and all put into an ecosystem with a particular kind of environment that sustains the life of all of it, and all of that by God's words. We should be in awe of that. God's words expressing God's will are powerful. They do not fall flat. We make promises that get broken all the time. We say one thing will happen and something else thwarts that purpose altogether. We make grandiose predictions and they fail. That never happens with God. He says in Isaiah 55, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And that began with let there be light. And there was light. And so God's Word goes on. When God says He will free His people from slavery through Moses, He does it. When God says Jericho will fall, if you just walk around it and blow the trumpets, it happens. When God says His people will be conquered by their enemies because of their sin, it happens. When God promises they will return to the land after exile, it happens. When God sends His 
word in the flesh to accomplish the salvation of all men, it happens. All nations, all people who come to faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus will not fail. Jesus, the Word made flesh, will not fail to accomplish. He has not failed. His purposes will be worked out. When God says Christ will return, all things will be set right. Evil will be fully and finally punished. You reject Christ and you will face the wrath of God forever. You receive Christ and you will enjoy eternal joy. It will happen. God's Word is powerful. But there's another aspect of God's power here. When the Bible says in several places, one of the rhythms is, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. This is not, uh, saw is not a word of observation. Saw is a word of evaluation. It means to eye something up and down. It means to look it over and check it out and make sure it sizes up to what you want. And God sizes everything up. And it is exactly as He wants it to be. And then in the end, in verse 31, God looks at everything that He has made. And behold, it was very good. You, behold, isn't that interesting? Is that, look at that. God saw everything that He has made, but it's, He says, behold. Why? Because He's calling us to see the very same thing that God saw. It was very good. It was perfect. The same God whose word then, if God's word is this powerful, and it is, the same God who accomplishes creation, here's the other thing we need to know, based on all these saw, he saw it was good, he saw it was good, he saw and behold it was very good, the God who had the first word about creation is the God who will have the last word about creation. He has the last word about what is right. He has the last word about what is wrong. He has the last word about what is holy. He has the last word about what is acceptable. And as we go through here, we see everything He sees, which He has made, is good. Now, I want to pause because it seems that our times demand a particular implication here. I mean, the idea of God as judge has been rejected and put forward for as long as the Bible's been around, my goodness. But in our day, the particular rejection of God as creator is rampant. And what I mean by the rejection of God as Creator is when we look at the issues of gender in our society. Now, you may have friends or family members that are wrestling with issues of, general, of gender, whether it's just in general they're thinking about it, or whether it's very specific, they themselves are wrestling with questions about gender. 
And these folks are made in the image of God, and we must be compassionate, knowing that struggles and doubts about any number of issues abound in the human experience. There will be no end to the new ways that people question God's ordering of the world and of life until Jesus comes back. So we must be compassionate. We must also be courageous. Because the Bible teaches us that gender is not socially constructed. It is divinely created. It's actually been given as a good gift by God, by a good creator. And altering His good creation at my own command is to rebel against Him as Creator. To rebel against the Creator by doing that. It, we need to be compassionate and we need to be courageous. It is, not, it is not compassionate to say nothing. And it is not courageous to just lambast anybody who's struggling. Jesus is both in the Gospels, and we need to take our cues from Him. Because the Creator is the final evaluator of creation. So in the end, you and I are actually not judges of one another. I don't even evaluate my own life properly. God alone has that power. And my question is, what will God say of us? What will God say of you? His word is the last word. What will that last word be? His word is based on His revelation. What will that last word be? His word is based on a core which you may hide beneath a thousand feet of veneer, but what will his last word be? When his word, as sharp as, sharp as any two-edged sword, pierces between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and gets down and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart and lays us bare before himself, what will that last word be? Creation declares a God who is glorious because His Word is powerful. Secondly, creation declares, and we'll do this one actually more briefly, God's work is personal. As you look at verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God is hovering over the water. God does not create remotely. This is not a, a deist God who winds up the clock and lets things go. His hands, His voice are in everything. This hovering is the way that a hen would brood over her chicks, caring for them, watching over them. It's the way that uh, you... Uh, we parents, you know, we go to the mall and you're like, you got your eyes on those, you got, I got my eyes on these. 
Now, once you get to a certain number, you can't have your eyes in all of the places that you need to have your eyes. It's a good thing that mothers have eyes in the back of their head because this is why it's necessary. But you've got those and I've got, and, uh, and we watch over. In fact, God says that to his people in Deuteronomy 32, 11, that he, like an eagle, he flutters over them. God's care for you, Israel, he says, is the same care that took place in creation. And nowhere is that more clear than in the account of God's creation of human beings. He got, did you notice the shift in the way things are said? We have let there be, 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 let us make. And then there is the discussion of the creating. And then there is the in His own image. Now, there's much debate about the, the let us make, but at the very least, we have God speaking, and we have the Spirit of God hovering over the water. But once we get to the New Testament, we see this is a, this is a bigger us than that. This isn't a multitude of gods. This is, this is plurality of persons in the unity of the Godhead creating so God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female. He created them so that even in humanity, there would be plurality in unity. There would be male and female. And then it gets even more personal in chapter 2, which we'll come to next week. Verse 7, the Lord, then the Lord God formed the man of of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature and then in verse 21 so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This is very intimate, personal activity. And God is going to interact with man. God's work is personal. And this is actually critical for us to know that God's work actually isn't only personal in the beginning with creation. God continues to care for creation now. And Jesus says, actually, this is critical for us to battle against anxiety and worry. He says, Jesus says, that, um, that God actually feeds the birds. And He clothes the grass with flowers. He's still actively caring for creation. So why would you ever worry about eating what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear? Just seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God's work is personal. The third thing, creation declares that God is glorious because of what He's done here, that God's image bearers are unique. Earth is the focus of the creation account. And as we go along, 
mankind as it were, apart from God being on the main stage, He brings mankind right to the front. Everything focuses in here. The deliberation about man goes on. It's going to go on in the next chapter. God makes man in His image, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Much has been written on the image of God in man. Um, giant tomes penned to seek to explain the image of God in man. I think the best way to think about this is to think, what would Israel be thinking when they hear the simple word image? Their society was full of the images of God's carved wood that were meant to be like the God and to represent the God. This is what these little statues were meant to be. And so, this would be, I think, the best way that Israel would take it, is that to be made in the image of God means to be like God, not, not to be God, but to be like God and to represent God on the earth. This is why, by the way, the, they would be commanded in Exodus 20, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The reason is God has already placed on earth the only image of Himself that is needed, and that is in the human race itself. Mankind, we are to be like God. Now, there are ways in which, I mean, we're after the fall here, but, there, but we could list a whole bunch of things. I, I actually don't want to make a list because it would be incomplete, I think. We are meant to be like God. The, actually, the most important way that we are to be like God is to we are to be holy. Because God is holy. I mean, we have intellect, we have emotion, we have will, we, we have these things. We have relational capacity that is unique to us. But God never says, be emotional as I am emotional. God never says, be intellectual as I am intellectual. In fact, He tells us His wisdom surpasses anything we could imagine. What He says is, be holy as I am holy. Now, that's not all that the image of God means, but we are to be like God. Ephesians 5.1, we are to be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. We are to represent God. We are to be a reminder to all of creation and to one another of the one God who made us all. So, look at this photograph. Now, can somebody tell me who that is? Who said Joshua? Janine, you're wrong. That is not Joshua. 
That is not Joshua. That's not even 3D. Trust me, Joshua never stays this still. (laughs) This is an image. In being an image, though, when you look at that, what do you think of? Where does your mind go? It doesn't go, it goes to who that boy is. That's why you keep pictures of family vacations and family at different stages in life. Because when you look at that, when, when, when my parents look at, that, look at that seventh grade picture of me, as awful as it is, they remember who I was at that time. And when I look at this, I think of Joshua. The image is meant to take your mind away from the image to the reality. When I see a picture of a family vacation, I think back. I remember the smell of the salt air. I remember the restaurant that we were at. I remember what the waiter was like. I remember what I ate. I remember wanting to eat that again. Because the image is meant to take your mind to the reality. And we are made in the image of God in part meaning that as we interact with one another, we ought to, people ought to have a sense of Godness. This is what Paul says when he says, We are the aroma to some of death and to others of life. As we live for Jesus Christ, I mean, the theme of our missions conference this year is being the hands and feet, being Jesus' hands and feet to the end of the street. So that there's a sense in which we ought to image God as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ better than anyone else. That our lives ought to point to a reality that is far greater than this world. That's what we are to be, God's image in this world. We were created to be like Him. We were created to represent Him. And He blesses us to do it. Did you notice that? He says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the earth. We're not the first creatures to be blessed and told to multiply. We're just the ones who are told to be blessed and to multiply and fill the earth and subdue everything and have dominion, and you're in charge. Isn't that interesting? God could have filled the whole earth with human beings. But one of the things that, is, that God very uniquely does in creation is He fills the earth. And then He calls us to fill the earth. He says to Adam and Eve, fill the earth. I mean, we could have been swarming like the sea creatures and like the land animals and all of that, but God said this, Now you fill the earth. You carry on what I've already done. You represent me. You be like me. Now they won't fill the earth the way he did it, by the power of their their words. And they won't actually do it without his help. Because they don't have the power to do it apart from divine providence and sovereignty intervening. But they are to do it. He also blessed them to represent by having dominion over the earth. And God then provides 
plants for food and later he's going to provide animals for food and all God's people said, Amen. All right. And in this way, creation in that way serves humanity. But as God's representatives, just as God cares for His creation, we ought to care for the creation. Now, there are two radical extremes that we have to avoid when we think about caring for the creation. One is to think that some, some kind of belief that we can destroy the earth with our bad behavior. This is an extreme view. We cannot step over God's sovereign plan with our carbon footprint. We can't do it. The other extreme is to be thoughtless about creation. If God feeds the birds and clothes the fields with flowers, He sustains and beautifies creation, and we are to represent Him, then we must be thoughtful in our care for that same creation. That's all I'm saying. The implications, now go back to the image of God. The, the implications for this truth that every human being is made in the image of God speaks to so many contemporary issues, apart from the, the issue of gender, which we've already spoken to. It speaks to issues of human life. That human life, because every human being is made in the image of God, every human being has inherent dignity, from the most able-bodied, able-minded person to the least. From the very youngest in the womb to the oldest among us. From the radical terrorist to the suburban philanthropist, every human being is made in the image of God. All human life matters. God even says so, doesn't He? That's why he forbids murder in Genesis 9, because they are made in my image. It actually, this idea of being made in the image of God should govern the way that we talk to one another. It should govern the way that I speak to you and you speak to me. I can't actually come to you and say, I can say whatever I want to say. I just need to get this off my chest. I'm just going to blast you because it's the truth. Well, not according to James chapter 3. According to James chapter 3, James says, With the same tongue we bless our Father and we curse those who are made in His image. Brothers, this should not be so. So actually, because you're made in the image of God, it doesn't just matter whether I kill you or not. It matters how I talk to you. Even if you're giving me horrendous customer service. Even if you are not talking to me in the way you ought to. We have to be settled that the Bible is the source of authority in how we live and work and act and move and, and, and speak. And not the activity of other people. The Bible is the final authority. It affects issues of dealing with immigration and refugees. There's a whole lot to think about here, and I am not a specialist on immigration. But I will tell you this. 
Every single person that we talk about in those conversations is made in the image of God. And if we can get in that conversation and out of it without thinking about the fact that every single man, woman, and child that we are talking about is made in the image of God, we are not doing so in a Christian way. That much I can say with firm fact. It affects issues of race and ethnicity. Do our instinctive responses to people who are ethnically different than us begin with the fact that they are made in the image of God? This really isn't about not seeing color, whatever that actually means. Okay, I'm sure we could define that in a way that would be acceptable. It's actually about just seeing color properly as the beautiful diversification of the image of God among humanity. And the fact is, this beautiful diversity of humanity in the image of God from all backgrounds will populate the new heavens and the new earth under God. The question that you and I have to ask ourselves is, will my attitude toward those who look differently and are from different backgrounds than me, will that attitude toward them be an avenue by which the Lord may graciously bring them into His kingdom, or might it be an obstacle and I don't get to be part of that in their life. It speaks to issues of whether we will, whether we will accept cultural ideas about what is, what, what is smart and what is beautiful and, and, and what is... All of these things are wrapped up. What is acceptable? It, it'll, it'll affect the time that you go... The next time you go to whatever store you go to and you see someone... Uh, who may be from the same ethnic background as you, but they look radically different on purpose. Their hair is, was not that color when they were born. Those holes were not in their face or their body when they were born. But they have done these things. And will your first thought be, this is a soul of a person made in the image of God who will spend eternity somewhere? Because my guess is when it comes to those kinds of questions... There should probably be a great deal of repentance among us. When you look at that congressperson, that president, that governor, that mayor, that boss, does the image of God affect how you think of them? Or are we thinking unchristianly? There's so much more, isn't there? But from, the, from here on, mankind becomes the very uh, focal point of God's work in the world. Human beings are the focused object of His work. The last thing creation, I mean, there are other, we could look, details, details, we're not going to, let me just give you one more. Creation declares that God's process is purposeful. I use the word process thoughtfully, and I hope clearly 
Because what is not meant is some sort of freewheeling evolutionary development of creation. I just mean if you start at Genesis 1-1, when God creates, He creates everything out of nothing, Hebrews 11-3, but not instantaneously. He systematically goes through each day. This process is purposeful. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void. In other words, it's basically a wasteland. God creates, and then He forms His creation into what He designs it to be. It's a rather chaotic place. Darkness is over the face of the deep. These are, these are not happy images. But praise the Lord, the Spirit of God is hovering over it all. So God creates an earth without form and void, and then immediately in the first three days of creation, He forms what was formless. So you have light and darkness and water and skies, and they all have boundaries, and land that sustains life is there. And then in days four to six, He fills what was empty, so that now lights fill the sky, the star, sun and the moon and the stars, the sea creatures fill the waters, the birds fill the air, animals fill the land, and then here are human beings. And God does it all on purpose in six days. Now, there are those who will tell us that these six days are metaphorical, each one standing for a very long period of time, what is called the day-age uh, theory of creation. Because what they will say, in addition to the fact that, you know, science has really proven that um, the universe is far older than a literal six-day account of creation could actually produce. Um, and they will then, once they've got their science, then they'll go to the Bible and say, well, haven't you noticed in other places the word day is not used to speak about a literal 24-hour day? And so the conclusion is, I, I don't think these people are not well-meaning in their attempts. I just mean to present uh, their case uh, well-meaning in that they're trying to understand. I think wrongly they're trying to understand what Genesis 1 is speaking about. So I would actually answer those proposals with four answers. Ready? It's not going to be on the screen. One, it is true that day is sometimes used uh, in an indeterminate way. So the day of the Lord is not a single day. The day of gladness in Numbers chapter 10 verse 10 is a period of time. A day is as a thousand years, Second Peter 3 says. But... But when the Bible uses the word day with a number, it's not metaphorical. You get this in Joshua. You get this in the Gospel of John. You get this in a whole host of places. I mean, when... When God tells Ezekiel to lay on his left side for 390 days, he's not just being metaphorical. Like, whatever you think a day is, man, just do it. 
That along with the fact that we have the rhythm of, and there was evening and there was morning. Secondly, second answer would be, this lets science be the determining interpretive method rather than the Bible interpreting itself. That is problematic. Anytime we take something outside the Bible and says this will determine the Bible's meaning, then what we're saying is God hasn't been clear enough in the Bible that we must come along to do that. We're not anti-science. We just don't, we, we cannot be the people who hold science up as the one that determines what the Bible says, whether it's true or not. I mean, can anybody find a repeatable event of the sun standing still? Third, what about the appearance, let's address the appearance of age deal, all right? Because that is one thing that people will point to. But if you notice in Genesis 1, God creates things with the appearance of age. He creates trees and plants that are already producing vegetation. He creates birds that are flying. They're not little chicks. They're not in their eggs ready to hatch and going to have to figure out how to fly. They're already flying. And if that doesn't convince you, He creates man. Adam is milliseconds old, but he looks like a full-grown man. The appearance of age is not a difficulty for a sovereign creator. The last thing, which I actually think is the most difficult thing to get past, is I want you to imagine that we're in the desert. Spies have already gone into the land. We've uh, voted as a congregation to defy God and not believe Him. And now Moses is teaching us. All right? And, 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 and Moses, had, Moses is, well, before then, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, right? And he's got these tablets, and he comes down. He's going to explain the law to us. Let me read this for you, boys. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh you shall rest. Because... Genesis, because, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Now, I want you, I, sincerely, I sincerely, I, I, I mean, if I'm wrong, I want to be shown to be wrong, but I want you to put yourself in the first hearing of Moses' words that in six days God created all things, and on the seventh he rested, so you work for six days, and you rest a seventh. Is anybody in that congregation going, now, is that just a literary device? Is that, um, do you mean long eons of time? I think the most, the, the, the simplest and most uh, if, efficient explanation is that when people heard I work six days and I rest a seventh because God did His work of creation in six days and He rested on the seventh. My conclusion is God created everything in six days. And He rested on the seventh. To, to complicate that, I think, is to go beyond what the original audience would have thought when they are hearing this. 
and as they're teaching their children. So God creates in six days and He rests on the seventh. He actually didn't have to do either one. Have you ever thought about that? You didn't have to take six days. That's like, an et- that's like 6,000 years to the Lord. But He does this on purpose. He takes six days on purpose. He rests on the seventh on purpose. His process is purposeful. The Sabbath, this work six days and rest a day, teaches Israel that God, by His powerful Word, okay, He took that which was formless and void, and He forms it and fills it, and then He rests. And that rest is the holy declaration that creation is complete. There is nothing left to do. Not by some evolutionary series of events, but by God's sovereign declaration, His divine fiat, these things happened. It also teaches the people of Israel, and us, by the way, that the rhythm of work and rest is a holy rhythm. Rest is holy for us as creatures because it is a reminder that we need rest and God never needs it. God did not rest on the seventh day because He was tired. In fact, the word doesn't really mean the kind of rest that we mean, like you come to the end of a long day and I've just got to rest. What it means is He stopped working. That's what it means. He did no work on the seventh day. God was not breathing hard for 24 hours. He never grows weary. He never grows faint. But we do. And that rhythm of work and rest is holy in this. I mean, I remember Charles Swindoll once saying that sometimes the most holy thing you can do is take a nap. Now, I think in the right context, that could be okay, like this afternoon. All right? So, but listen, I, the fact of the matter is, is that, that God needs no rest. And there are times, isn't it true, that there are times in life when we go and we go and we go and we work and we work and we work. And every waking hour we are working, we are doing, we are working, we are doing. And it's as if we are trying to usurp the God's, God's godness. As if we can go by with no sleep. Rest is ordained of God, friends. Rest is a gift, according to Jesus. The Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. God doesn't command us to rest so that we'll tie ourselves up in knots over what we should do and what we shouldn't do. God commands us to rest so that we'll rest. That's why He commands it. And rest is a picture of our salvation. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We are called to enter that rest in Hebrews. So, God takes the formless and the void, and He says, let there be light, and there is light, and He takes deliberate time to form and fashion His creation to shape it according to His purposes so that it is complete. And then He says, it's all very good. 
Dear friend, this is not just the shape of the story of creation. This is the shape of the story of the Christian as a new creation. You see, in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23, there's this image of Judah in sin and under wrath. And a precise phrase from Genesis 1-2 is used in Jeremiah 4-23, which is, You are without form and void. Sin has brought you under the wrath of God, and it's as if you've undone everything good. And that's where sin leaves us. That's where sin takes us. Under sin, under God's wrath, formless and void, no God-oriented shape to life, empty of all meaning, a wasteland of an existence. But God doesn't leave us that way. He sends Jesus Christ, the perfect image of God, to be like God in a way we can't because He is God. To represent God in a way we can't because He is God. To subdue the earth and to fill it with His glory. And so Jesus lives a perfect life and dies a substitutionary death doing all of the work of creation, declaring it is finished on the cross, being raised from the dead on the third day. He ascends to heaven and He sits down and He rests because the work is done. And now for those of us who believe in Jesus... It can be said of us that at one time you were without form and void. In sin, under the wrath of God, you were without form and void. But the God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone into our hearts the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Dear friends, if you're a believer in Jesus, God has said, let there be light in your life. He gives grace so that we would come to Him by faith. And we are new creations. And now God is working intentionally over His set period of time to form us and to fill us until Christ is all in all in our lives. That by His Spirit and through His Word and through every circumstance in life, He makes us more like Jesus Christ until the last day when we are glorified in the new heavens and the new earth. And it comes to an end. And God looks at His new people in the new heaven and the new earth made perfect by the blood of His dear Son. And He says for the very last time, this is very good. This is very good. That is where creation is going. And we enjoy the joyful, eternal presence of Jesus Christ, our Savior, forever. We enter Finally, that rest. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you. And we want to... 
take a moment, even as we pray, to consider your greatness as Creator. We see that your word is powerful, causing things to be which were not. We see that your work is personal, that you cared as you created and you care for your creation even now. We see that we, as your, unique, your, your image bearers, are unique among creation and as the focal point of your work in this world. Would you help us, Father, as those who are not only made in your image, but who have been remade through Jesus Christ, would you help us to live as if we believe that every human being we encounter is made in your image? Would you help us to not lose sight of that when it comes to issues of life or issues of gender or issues of immigration or issues of beauty or issues of race and ethnicity? We recognize that your process in creation is purposeful. That your creation in six days and your rest on the seventh day are not because you needed those things, but that you might set a pattern for us, that you might teach us. And so we ask that you truly would, by your Spirit, teach us to to enjoy the rhythm of work and rest. To work for your glory and to rest for your glory because we are not you. We are creatures who grow faint and weary. We thank you for the rest that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you called us out of darkness and into light, and that by your Spirit and through your Word you make us to live more as children of light. Until that day when we see Jesus face to face and we become as He is because we see Him as He truly is. Thank you for the day that is coming, that your powerful Word guarantees that that day is coming in a new heaven, a new earth, that we will be completely new. And forever and fully, it will be very good. We long for that day, Lord, and we long to be a people who are used by you to fill that day with as many people as possible. I pray, Lord, that 
if there are those who don't believe in you among us, that by your Spirit you would convict them. Say, let there be light into their souls, even today, that they might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and by faith run to Him and embrace Him. Lord, as we go from this place to the various things that you have in store for us this day and this week, we pray that we would faithfully bear your image, that we would be like you, that we would represent you, that your glory and the glory of your Son, our Savior Jesus, will be foremost in our minds. We ask all of this in the name of the author and finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.